Well, good morning. Our topic uh, scripture this morning is going to be from the book of Matthew. It's chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. It's commonly known as the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Hey, Steve. How are you? Good. Harry, nice to see you here. Always good to see you here. Nina, thank you always for your, your leadership. Isn't it nice to call people by their name? Right? Names matter. They help to distinguish us from one another. They reflect our lineage, our ancestry, but our names are also a part of us from birth to death and have meanings that often contain messages. Most Hispanic women have the name Maria or Mary in their name as an homage to the mother of Jesus. The name Adam is actually the Hebrew word for human. And Eve is the Hebrew word for life. Did you know that? Jerry Dorsey was a talented singer in England who began performing and recording in the early 1950s, but he couldn't get the time of day for his efforts. Until a marketing guru advised him to adopt the name of a famous German composer, Engelbert Humperdinck. The rest is history. Names matter. In 1934, a Baptist pastor from the U.S., named Mike, visited the Baptist World Alliance Convention in Germany. Hitler had been in power for just two years, but already his seeds of hatred and discrimination were taking root throughout Germany. Mike and his fellow delegates were shocked at the treatment of Jews and any other race or societal segment that their Fuhrer had labeled non-Germanic and therefore lesser humans. These delegates signed off to a resolution while at the convention in Germany, and here's what it said, quote, This Congress deplores and condemns as a violation of the law of God the Heavenly Father all racial animosity and every form of oppression or unfair discrimination toward the Jews, toward colored people, or toward subject races in any part of the world, unquote. When Reverend Mike returned to pastor his Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, he decided to take the name of the founder of the great Protestant Reformation. So he changed his name from Michael King to Martin Luther King. His five-year-old son, Michael King Jr., would grow up to be a Baptist preacher too. And following in his father's footsteps, he would officially change his name to Martin Luther King Jr. on July 23, 1957. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the most gifted writers and speakers of the 20th century. He pointed to Jesus in words and deeds, and he once wrote, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Names matter. The name of Jesus matters most of all.
An apostle whose name was Matthew wrote a book in the New Testament. He tells us in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that the Lord spoke to a man named Joseph in a dream, and he called him by his name. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. 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 There's something about that name. If you do a little research, we would find Jesus also referred to as Emmanuel, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the Son of Man. In Habakkuk, he is the Holy One. In Zephaniah, he is mighty to save. In Haggai, he is Lord of Hosts. In Zechariah, he is the Crucified Son. You'll find literally scores of titles for the name of Jesus all through the Bible. One site I visited online listed 155 meanings for the name Jesus. I guess the question we need to be concerned about is this. In Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? After hearing several responses like John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets, Jesus looks at John and asks him, who do you say I am? And John clearly answers, you are the Christ. And Jesus, in the very next verse, verse 30, warns them not to tell anyone about him. You may ask, why and how do you keep that secret? Understand this, we all have different experiences in our spiritual education, in our spiritual journeys. Do you remember your first experience with Jesus? When you first met him? Maybe you remember the first time you humbled yourself to the point where you asked Jesus to come into your heart to forgive you and to love you. When you accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life, do you remember what happened? Were you excited? Did you want to tell somebody? I grew up in a Christian home full of prayer, hymn sings, church attendance. I was a churchy. I knew all about Jesus, I studied my Bible, I said my prayers, but there was one night when a preacher named Bernie Smith, who led our choir of young folks all over Ontario, the U.S., and even to Europe, at many churches we sang and Bernie preached. And one night, he spoke of the returning Jesus, and the Holy Spirit opened my ears and reached right into my heart. And I knew right then that I needed to get right with God, now. Not later, not when I have a moment, but right then. So I did. I prayed that Jesus would forgive me, save me from myself and my sin, and he did. And I never felt so relieved, so happy, so free. Gospel starts with go. So you know what the first thing I did was with my good news? After that night when I got home, I called my best friend across the street and I told him what had happened. I explained John 3.16. I encouraged him to get right with God. And he did. My joy, my enthusiasm made me an instant evangelist. I wanted to spread the gospel. I wanted to share the good news with my friend. You like trivia? Do you realize that an old royal announcement from the Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar uses the Greek word for gospel to mean good news, 
Many assume the word gospel was first and only used by Christians. In fact, this particular term was used before Jesus was even born and was used to refer to someone other than Jesus. In his blog, blog rather, the Gospel of Caesar, Dr. Matthew Halstead gives us concrete evidence that terms such as God and gospel were clearly applied to the Roman emperor. Specifically, he points readers to an inscription that dates back to within a decade prior to Christ's birth in Bethlehem. The empire announced a contest or a competition granting a crown to anyone who could come up with the best idea to honor Caesar Augustus. That honor ended up going to the proconsul Paulus Fabius Maximus. I always wanted a name like Vaticus. I think Jefficus was taken. But. He suggested that the Asian calendar be reorganized around the emperor's birthday. A decree was then published outlining a new calendar system. Listen to the language used to describe Caesar in this ancient inscription. Quote, Whereas the providence that ordains our whole life has established with zeal and distinction that which is most perfect in our life, by bringing Augustus, who she filled with virtue. By the way, she is referring to the Roman goddess Terra Mater, who was responsible for agriculture and earthquakes and marriage and fidelity. Literally, the Latin Terra Mater means Mother Earth. Remember that the next time you and your friends are talking about Mother Earth and Mother Nature. It's not exactly an original thought. It's a Roman goddess. Anyway, the inscription goes on to state, quote, She, Terra Mater, filled with virtue as a benefaction to all humanity, sending to us and to those after us a Savior who put an end to war and brought order to all things. The birth of the God was the beginning of gospel, good tidings or good news, to the world through him, unquote. Augustus, with his military might, had put an end to war and brought order to all things. He is declared savior to the people as a God whose birth was understood as the beginning of good tidings, gospel for the world. Wow. I guess that's a good reason for us to always declare the gospel of Christ because there are other gospels out there and they ring very hollow in comparison. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke 2, 1 to 14, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring good news, a gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For under, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Dr. Halstead points out that there is no getting around the obvious fact that Luke's gospel is totally at odds with the claims of Caesar's gospel. Whereas Caesar was proclaimed as a god worthy of veneration, the savior who brought peace to the world, Luke and the early Christians proclaimed a counter-narrative. 
Jesus, not Caesar, is the one who brings good news, the gospel of peace in the world. Only Jesus brings true peace to the earth because he, through his cross and his resurrection, disarmed the rulers and authorities and has therefore overcome the world. Two quotes from Colossians 2.15 and John 16 and 33. Gospel starts with go. One messenger of the gospel is actually a Jewish rabbi and a Christian author and speaker. Rabbi Jonathan Kahn says that we are in the days of return. Many today are returning to the Jewish state just as Jesus said that he himself will return to Israel. But he made one thing very clear in Matthew 23, 37 to 39, just before his arrest and crucifixion. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, perhaps you've heard of an organization called One for Israel. Something miraculous is happening. Something amazing is happening in the Middle East. Many of the Jewish people are turning to Jesus. Jews are evangelizing for Jesus all over the world in Hebrew, English, and many other languages. These are the days of return. These are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord. And God has raised up a movement within Israel announcing to the Jews and Gentiles alike that Jesus, Yeshua, is indeed the Messiah. Jesus is bringing Jews and Gentiles together in himself. Many are accepting that Jesus, the radical Jewish rabbi of long ago, was and is the Messiah, prophesied for thousands of years throughout the Testament. Jews are discovering that Jesus and Christianity are the most Jewish things in the world. Jesus was a Jew, born in Bethlehem, never stepping outside of Israel. He lived, died, and rose again from the dead in Israel. For whosoever believeth in him, Jews and or Gentiles. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus, speaking of the end times, says, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, in unheard numbers, Jews are returning to Israel. After 2,000 years, the Israeli desert is blooming again. The nation is flourishing. The Jews are planning to rebuild the temple very soon. And just like 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, go and preach the gospel, Jews are hearing the call. Gospel begins with go, and they are reaching out to the rest of the world in unheard of numbers. The Jewish nation, which for thousands of years has proclaimed one God, Yahweh, is now beginning to recognize Yeshua, Jesus, as more than just a teacher. One for Israel, Gentiles and Jews for Jesus. And just as the first followers are Jesus, they do so at the cost of ostracization and persecution, but they're standing up for Jesus. In the song Days of Elijah, the, Robert, the writer Robin Mark pens these prophetic words, though these are the days of great trial, of famine and darkness and sword, still we are the voice in the desert crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Jews today are standing up for the one who said, I am the truth, the one they know as Yeshua, and they are crying out. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His name is Jesus. Luke tells us in Act 12 that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Reverend Will Hahn stood here on this platform not very long ago. He was a Buddhist monk at one time before he became a Christian leader. He stood here and said this, Evangelism is an inevitable, helpless byproduct of us encountering Jesus in our daily life. This was my experience exactly. Evangelism was a helpless byproduct of my encounter with Jesus. My revelation that he was the Christ, I couldn't wait to go out into my little world and make disciples. So why would the Messiah, Jesus, who told his disciples to go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples, tell his disciples not to tell anyone about him? Simply because at that moment, he knew they were not ready. They didn't yet really know how to be a disciple, let alone help create other disciples. But how? I remember visiting Dallas to celebrate my 60th birthday with my son and our beloved Dallas Cowboys. <sighs> Maybe next year. We decided to visit the site of John F. Kennedy's assassination. We headed downtown and we found Dealey Plaza and the Texas Library School Book Depository and the building where Lee Harvey Oswald lay in wait with his sniper rifle. There were a lot of people there milling about, looking, remembering, explaining what happened there to their kids. In the midst of the traffic and the street noise was a voice crying out, a voice warning of sin, hell's damnation, and God's terrible judgment, almost screaming into a badly distorted sounding microphone, shouting that we are all sinners, we all need to repent now, and most people ignore him. A few people shout him down. Perhaps somehow he did reach someone. I don't know, but I remember thinking this. Buddy, no. You're scaring people away from Jesus. This isn't how you spread the news. I could have been wrong. And I'm sure that God blessed him for trying, but Jesus never stood on the corner and screamed his messages into the crowds. Even John the Baptist picked a river and waited for people to come to him. Maybe the teenage me was like the guy with a bullhorn on a street corner trying to save somebody. I was thrilled but perplexed by my experience. And today when I read the parable of the sower of the seed, I remember those days. Remember Matthew 13 and 5? Some seed fell on rocky ground where there was little soil. The seed soon sprouted, but when the sun came up, it burned the young plants. I was a young, enthusiastic Christian standing on rocky ground. I had no experience with very little understanding of how to do what I was trying to do. Jesus knew that the best way to lead others to the understanding of repentance and salvation is to build understanding, maturity, confidence, and discipline in ourselves before we take on the mantle of evangelism. And that's why Jesus focused on discipleship. Former U.S. Top Gun CF-18 fighter pilot, now a pastor in Houston, Greg Matt says, the great I am changes who I am. Maybe we should recognize that the great I am wants us to realign our priorities a bit. Maybe we just need to take the time so we can focus on what Jesus focused on 
and we'll get better results. Gospel begins with go. Jesus said to go and make disciples, not merely go and get people saved. If you remember your grammar, there's only one active imperative command in what we call the Great Commission, go and make disciples. That's it. The rest is how disciples are made, such as going, baptizing, and teaching. You would never send a brand new Christian to deepest, darkest Africa to be a missionary. You just wouldn't. You need mature Christians who are strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Jesus' primary focus was discipleship. He worked on them for three years, and he commanded us and them to go and make disciples. You literally will never know the impact that your discipleship as a, a Sunday school teacher, a helpful neighbor, a greeter at the church door, a faithful friend, a caring nurse, a caregiver, or a Christian witness. You'll never know the impact you'll have on a person's life. Remember the old saying, you can count the apples on the tree, but who can count the apples in a seed? So it is with the influence of a single person. For example, there was a, a man named Kimball. He was a Sunday school teacher who not only prayed for the often rowdy boys in his class, but sought to win each one to the Lord. One young man in particular didn't seem to understand what the gospel was all about, so Kimball went to the shoe store where the young man worked stocking shelves and in a back room confronted him with the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus. That young man would become the evangelist Dwight L. Moody. And on that Saturday, he accepted Jesus as his Savior. In his lifetime, Moody touched two continents for God with untold thousands coming to faith in Jesus through his teaching. But there's more. Under Moody, another man's heart was touched for God. His name was Wilbur Chapman. And Chapman became an evangelist and preached to many thousands. One day, a professional baseball player had a day off and attended one of Chapman's meetings. And thus, Billy Sunday was converted. Billy Sunday left his pro baseball outfield position and became a pitcher, pitching the gospel and becoming one of the most influential evangelists of the early 20th century. Under his ministry, another young man was converted whose name was Mordecai Ham, a scholarly, dignified gentleman who would take his preaching across the U.S., including a place called Charlotte, North Carolina. One sandy-haired, lanky young man, then in high school, vowed he wouldn't go here and preach, but Billy Frank, as his family called him, did eventually go, and the young man decided to see what would happen. What happened that night was that Billy Graham went to the tent crusade and was intrigued by what he heard, so he went back again. Returning on that other night, he responded to the invitation and asked Jesus into his heart. Billy Graham would go on to preach to more people than any other person who has ever lived. And this whole fascinating chain of events was triggered by a Sunday school teacher's concern for his boys. Are you beginning to understand why you can't count the apples in a seed? The next time you feel like God can't use you, that you can't make a difference, think again. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. 
Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. David had an affair and was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. And Lazarus was dead. Now, no more excuses. Gospel begins with go. God can use us to our full potential. Besides, we aren't the message, we're the messengers. Robert Louis Stevenson once advised, don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. The world today is hungry for good news. There is no better news, no better gospel than God so loved the world. In David Jeremiah's Turning Point magazine, there's a story about Benil Dariush. He's a top-ranked Iranian-born, lightweight UFC mixed martial artist. After winning one big match during the post-fight interview, he addressed his countrymen back in Iran. Here's what he said. I need to dedicate this fight to my people in Iran. I know you're struggling. I know you're fighting for freedom. I know it's a tough struggle. I want you guys to know that we're praying for you, and we love you. Then he said this. Let me tell you one more thing. There is true freedom, a freedom that no one can take from you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't ever forget that. We never know when we'll have an opportunity to say a word for the Lord or present the gospel. When God leads you to share Christ with someone, obey. He'll give you the words you need. Just plant the seed. And even if you don't immediately see the results, God will look after the rest. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus encountered a demon-possessed maniac who lived among the tombs. Jesus cast out the demons, and the immediate change in the man was astonishing. The man wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus told him, no, go home to your family and tell them what the Lord has done for you. He became one of Christ's first evangelists, proclaiming the Lord Jesus to the towns of Galilee. And Mark 5.20 says, and all the people were amazed. Has Jesus made a difference in your life? Go home and tell your friends. Go to work and share your story with somebody. Go and show those around you that you are a Christian in the way you live and love other people. Go and plant that seed because of Jesus, the one who loved us so much that he gave his life on a cross for us. The one who overcame death and rose from a grave. He left it up to us to share the good news of the gospel. Do your part. Plant a seed. Don't. Let someone not know about Jesus and his love. Gospel begins with go. Amen.